welcome. This is a Vascular Forum interview. Hello, and welcome to the Vascular Forum interviews. My name is Melina Vega de Ceniga, and today we're going to address one of the hottest topics of the moment. The much-awaited results of the best CLI trial were released a few weeks ago, published in the New England Journal of Medicine. Briefly, this international randomized trial enrolled 1,830 patients with chronic lymph-threatening ischemia and infrainguinal peripheral artery disease and randomized them to receive open surgery or endovascular treatment. It was designed as two parallel cohort trials. Patients who had a single segment of great saphenous vein that could be used for surgery randomized for open or endovascular revascularization in cohort one. And patients without this single segment of great saphenous vein, that is, who would need alternate bypass conduit for the same randomization of open or endovascular treatment in cohort two. The primary outcome was a composite of death from any cause or a major adverse limb event, which included above the ankle amputation or a major limb reintervention, after revision, thrombectomy, a new bypass, or thrombolysis. To analyze the trial results in detail, we are privileged to have with us two co-chairs and one of the main investigators of the trial. Dr. Alec Farber is Division Chief of Vascular and Endovascular Surgery in the Boston Medical Center in the USA, professor at the Boston University School of Medicine and Associate Chief Medical Officer for Surgical Services. Welcome to the ESBS Podcasts. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Dr. Matthew Minard is the Director of the Vascular and Endovascular Fellowship Program, Co-Director of the Endovascular Surgery Program at Brigham and Women's Hospital, and Associate Professor of Surgery at Harvard Medical School in Boston. Welcome to this Vascular Forum interview. Thanks very much, Melina. It's great to be here. And Dr. Marit Venermo is the Head of the Department of Vascular Surgery at Helsinki University Hospital in Finland, Professor of Vascular Surgery at the University of Helsinki, current Secretary General of the ESVS, and a great supporter of the ESVS podcast. It's wonderful to talk to you again, Marit. Welcome. Thank you, Melina. It's a great honor to join this podcast. Thank you all very much for making time in your very full agendas to talk to us today. Let's start at the very beginning. How and when did the idea for this trial originate? Alec and I first met during our training at um, our general surgical training at Massachusetts General Hospital. And at one point, uh, moved back to Boston. We happened to be talking at a, a regional vascular surgical meeting uh, way back in 2007, so I guess 15 years ago. And we both kind of left our vascular surgical training in a period when endovascular surgery was kind of all the rage. And we both felt fortunate that we've been well trained in both open surgical techniques and endovascular therapy for peripheral arterial disease. And we just got talking. We had a conversation about equipoise where we were kind of admitting to each other that we didn't know the right thing to do for, for patients in terms of the first step for a complicated patient with CLI. And so that was the genesis for the trial. It took us a few years to get it launched, but it's actually somewhat remarkable that the question that we first posed to each other way back when, just as relevant today as it was then. Absolutely. The study randomized 1,830 patients in 150 participating sites in five countries. How difficult has it been to organize and manage? Melina, it was very difficult. You know, first we had to convince our sponsor, the National Institutes of Health, to give us enough money to support this trial. And trials like this, when organized in North America, are very expensive. 
Then we had to convince investigators across North America to participate in this trial and ask them to suspend their bias, their individual bias, because even though there was community equipoise, no question about that, uh, individual equipoise varied. Even within the same group, there are people who felt very strongly that for any given patient, you know, one or the other strategies is the absolutely right uh, way to treat our patients. We had to convince them to actually stop, suspend their bias, and enroll. And then when we had to get more sites and expand it outside of North America, it was also complicated because we had to identify countries and sites where there was actual equipoise. So it was a very long road, highly complicated, but highly rewarding to be here now. Eligible patients were 18 years or older with CLTI and acceptable surgical risk. The mean age of the recruited patients was 67 or 68 years. 71.8% and 60.3% were diabetic in each cohort. 43% and 52% had coronary artery disease. About 10% had chronic renal failure. Do you think the patients in the trial represent our everyday clinical practice? What kind of patients do the results of this trial apply to? Evelina, I, I think uh, that the answer to that is that they do. When you look at the kind of demographic profile, some of the numbers you just mentioned, and the kind of comorbid mix, it's very representative of a typical CLTI population, 60 to 70% diabetic in the two cohorts. That represents the reality, and it you know highlights the explosion of diabetes, certainly in America and across the globe. These are sick patients, again, with a lot of comorbidities, and they seem very representative of the group that we see every day in our practice. I think it's very important to remember that each and every patient enrolled into the trial had gone through a process where one investigator who was credentialed for endovascular therapy had to state that the patient was appropriate for endovascular therapy. A different investigator at the site, uh, credentialed in open, and they could not be the same person, had to agree that the patient was appropriate for open surgical therapy. And so they had to agree as a CLI team at a given participating institution that the patient was appropriate for both. So it, it is limited to the folks that there is this equipoise in terms of could be treated effectively with both. But outside of that, the inclusion criteria were quite broad, and it's a very broad percentage of the patients that I, I do think are kind of re represented by the trial. I agree with Matt, and in Helsinki, the two main reasons for not to include patients to a trial were that they either had very short lesions, like one, two millimeters, which clearly was suitable for endovascular first approach, or very long lesions when we went straight to the open surgery. A third big group, which is increasing, was unfit for surgery patients, Patients who approached the age of 100 years who were still living at home. And there, we, of course, could not do open surgery. So they went either to endovascular first strategy or conservative treatment. So I definitely think the patients do represent everyday practice. But of course, not all the patients we meet. It is sobering that about one in five surgical patients and one in three endovascular patients suffered a major adverse perioperative limb event, and one in 10 a myocardial infarction, one in 20 a stroke, and that half of the patients in the trial suffered from death or a major adverse event at a medial follow-up of less than three years. This is the scope of the disease we are dealing with. In cohort one, 
The surgical patients suffered a primary event in 42.6% of the cases compared favorably with 57% of the endovascular patients with a hazard ratio of 0.68. The difference lies in the major limb events because death from all causes was similar. Major interventions occurred in 9.2% of the surgical patients and 23.5% of the endovascular patients for a hazard ratio of 0.35. Major amputation occurred in 10.4% and 14.9% in the surgical and endovascular groups respectively for a hazard ratio of 0.73. Additionally, patients in the surgical group had a lower incidence rate of new or recurrent CLTI events than those in the endovascular group with an incidence rate ratio of 0.82. Now, this is the big question. Does this data do away with the endo-first approach followed in many centers worldwide? I think this data tells us about the outcomes that we already pretty much knew on the basis of our experience in CLTI patients, that after endovascular treatment, the risk stenosis and reintervention rates are very high, and thus the number of reinterventions is substantial. Also, many patients need bypass surgery because of the fact that either perfusion does not increase enough after endovascular treatment or endovascular treatment fails because of high risk stenosis rate. In some patients, this causes delay, which leads to the progression of tissue lesion and eventually amputation. The PCLA data has to be analyzed, of course, in details in order to fully understand the pathways to adverse events and major amputations. But regarding your question, I think the answer is yes. This study definitely shows that endovascular first strategy is not best strategy to all patients. So, Melina, I, I just want to add to this. You know, vascular specialists are fortunate to have multiple arrows in their quiver. Uh, they can treat patients with medical therapy, they can treat patients with open vascular surgery, and they can treat patients with endovascular therapy. And I think it's wonderful that we as a specialty have access to these various and different techniques. I think that over the years, there's been a lot of push to turn everything into endovascular, endovascular first, everything endovascular for all. And there are a lot of people who practice that way. And what best CLI does is it shatters that push. And the truth is, is that for some patients, endovascular first is not appropriate. Uh, Andrew Bradbury showed that in the basal trial, but it was a secondary analysis. Best CLI comes in and shows as a primary analysis, we're powered to answer this question. That in fact, endovascular first for all patients with CLTI is not an appropriate approach. If somebody has vein, bypass does better. I agree, definitely. The literature is, is fairly robust with regard to the cost of reintervention after a failed endovascular therapy, you know, and to some degree after a failed bypass surgery. So we know that the first step is very important and this data just reinforce that concept. It's actually very interesting for me. I trained in the early 2000s where the endovascular procedures were being developed and actually peaked. And I've seen the pendulum moving towards the push that you mentioned, Dr. Farber, with the endovascular first, endovascular for all. And it's interesting how this also happened in carotid surgery, where I saw carotid stents coming in and everyone said that, okay, and endoterectomy is going to be over, it's going to be old fashioned. And then research came in, some trials came in, 
and things were put in the right perspective. So there's place for everything, but there's clear knowledge of what is best where and the results of one or the other. And this hasn't happened in CLTI until now. Obviously, the patients are so much more complex and it's difficult to research. But I think this trial comes in at a very good time to try to put data, objective research into our prejudices and our practice. You raise a fascinating point and I'll just share the vignette that that's exactly how I approached patients when I kind of was offering them the trial or offering them participation in the trial that we have figured out as a field, you know, we have an open and an endovascular option in pretty much every vascular bed, carotid therapy, aortic surgery, you know, renal artery stenosis. And in many of the vascular beds, we've sorted out which one's better. We have a, a fairly clear sense. And the lower extremity is just one that we, we don't have the data for. And that, I think it helped patients understand kind of where we were at and helped them get to a position where they felt more comfortable participating in the trial. The technical success of the index procedure was 96% for surgical techniques and 85% for endovascular ones in cohort one. In the graphs, we see that most interventions and major amputations happen in the first six to nine months and are significantly more frequent for endovascular techniques. Does this mean that the initial decision, the first-line treatment, determines the fate of the patients? Yeah, I think this is in some way just a, a further discussion of the question we just were discussing. I think it does. I mean, it highlights the importance of the first step. And part of the work ahead of us with VESVLI is to really dive into the data in a little bit more detail and really sort out what the follow-up impact of reinterventions, the follow-up impact of amputations, both on the clinical outcomes and the quality of life. But there's no question that it, it highlights that this first step, uh, which is really the entire focus of the VESVLI trial, it is quite important. Yeah, I agree. And, and yes, in some patients, it does. And also, this means that we should, if patients have good quality vein, consider going for bypass surgery after first-line treatment. By the way, this primary composite endpoint only includes major limb interventions defined as graft revision, thrombectomy, thrombolysis, or a new bypass. I am assuming this then excludes new PTA for restenosis without thrombosis of the index endo procedure. Is this correct? And if so, how many minor interventions were there in both groups? And would the differences have been larger or smaller if all limb interventions had been considered? Well, you know, this is a very important question. Uh, when we try to establish what the endpoint should be in a major adverse limb event, as it was originally described, it included amputations above the ankle and major interventions because the thought was that minor interventions are something that is sort of par for the course for any endovascular procedure. Touch-ups should be allowed. And so we had a very long discussion with our executive committee about whether or not we should include all interventions or just major ones. And we all agreed in the end that it would be the service to include minor interventions into the endpoint. Because again, for the reason I just described, that you know it's sort of expected that people with endovascular therapy will have touch-ups here and there, and they should not be penalized for that. Now, the strategy should not be penalized for that. And so ultimately, we included only major interventions, which are thought to be really large procedures where somebody's either in the operating room, maybe getting anesthesia, or certainly being admitted to the hospital. So that's sort of the background. And so minor interventions were not included. Now, of course, minor interventions are important. In fact, in cohort one, 
In the open arm, there were 352 minor interventions. And in the endovascular arm, there are 466 minor interventions. The most common minor intervention was a angioplasty in both cohorts. And there was a significant difference, again, favoring surgery for minor intervention. The hazard ratio was 0.76 and the p-value was equal to 0.01. I don't think that including that would have made any difference to the primary outcome. And certainly we are going to report this and we're writing a paper right now on re-interventions that'll be part of it. The rates of early death were 1.7% for the surgical patients and 1.3% for those who received endovascular treatment. No significant differences there. Late death accrued in an almost linear way for both arms of the cohort in the graph provided in the paper. But the curves seem to diverge after the third year with more deaths in the endovascular group. Is this difference significant? And what do you attribute this divergence to? And I'm thinking about the debate of the effects of radiation NEVA trials, the debate on the drug-coated balloon PTA and increased late death, a controversy which has not been completely clarified. Yeah, Melina, it's a very astute question. And it is um, an insignificant divergence. There, there was no significant difference between um, mortality at any point during the trial for the two arms. And this is actually a very important finding of the trial. As you know, it's, a, it's an argument you hear fairly frequently that uh, to justify an endovascular first approach for all, that the mortality rates are higher for open surgery, the morbidity is higher. And this trial clearly shows that the impact in terms of the, the cardiovascular safety, again, the, the MACE rates, the major adverse cardiovascular event, which is essentially myocardial infarction, stroke, and death, a composite of those three individual endpoints was similar across the board in the two arms and in the two cohorts. So that's a very important component of, a, of the findings. We are increasingly challenged by CLTI in patients over 80 years. The median age of the patients with best CLTI was 67 years, as I mentioned previously. How many patients were over the age of 80? And what were the outcomes in each cohort for these patients? So, Melina, in cohort one, 9.4% of patients were older than 80. And in cohort two, almost 11% were older than 80. And that shouldn't be surprising because at the end of the day, we were asking investigators to enroll those patients where they felt that there was equipoise. And we did uh, do a survey of our investigators almost 10 years ago now, which showed that there was less equipoise when age was taken as a factor. So older patients, uh, most uh, surgeons felt that endovascular therapy is the way to go. So we're not surprised that you know, the, the median age was lower than, you know, than 80. But nevertheless, as I mentioned, about 10% of patients were older than 80. Now, with respect to how they did in the subgroup analysis, the effect is still pointing towards surgery, but the confidence intervals crosses the one point. And so we can't say much about those individuals. Certainly, uh, you could argue that you need more patients to really be able to answer the question about whether patients greater than 80 would be appropriate to be judged by the, the findings that we found or not. Or you could also say that maybe the difference is not as significant. Uh, it's hard to know right now. I'm also very interested in the subgroup of women. There have been several papers published in the last few years describing worse outcomes for women. Did you find similar data for the women in the BET-CLI trial? Well, I would highlight, you know, something you probably know, and women are historically underrepresented in cardiovascular trials. And 
knowing that given a mandate by the NIH to reach a certain benchmark of women enrolled into the trial, we still came in under our target. And I think it behooves all of us to really understand why that is. The NIH kind of sets a goal. Unfortunately, it doesn't tell you how to get to that goal. And so we struggled throughout the course of the trial. We were well aware of this issue and we tried very hard to address it. I just think it's very challenging. So that's just one point to note to understand why women participate less often than men in trials such as BEST. The data suggests that surgery was slightly better for women. I think we will be looking at that data more carefully to understand because it's an area of very high interest. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, women with CLTI are rising. Now, the study mentions that the surgical group had better outcomes across subgroups, except for the 80-year-olds who we have talked about, but also those with previous limb revascularization. Is this similar to the findings of the Basel 1 trial 15 years ago, which you mentioned previously, and is really the landmark or the basis that BCLI seems to have continued on and actually completed? Yeah, I think that's right. You know, the Basel results did shed light on this. We thought very hard in terms of what was going to be allowed into the trial in terms of the re-interventions and that you could be enrolled had you had prior surgery or had you had certain types of endovascular therapy. So if you had a long segment SFA stent, we will look at our own results again to determine so-called secondary in interventions after failed initial revascularization, what the differential results are going to be. But I do think this is an area of high interest as well. Surgical outcomes also seem to be worse in patients with renal dysfunction. This is a very sick and complex group, often with severe calcification, hostile for both open and endo techniques. Can you give us more details of the trial results in this sub of patients? You know, this was, again, an area that we put some thought into with regard to, are we going to include renal failure patients into the trial? We know they're a very sick group of patients. We know that they are likely going to engender a lot of events with regard to endpoints. They do have multiple complications. They have innumerable comorbidities. Ultimately, we thought to be fair to the patient population at large in CLTI that it made sense for us to include them. The challenge, of course, was are we just including a group of patients that introduces noise with regard to those events or are those events directly related to the revascularization? That was the key issue as we struggled to decide whether to include them. Ultimately, we did decide to include them. It also highlights the reality. We all know that you can do a perfect surgical bypass, particularly in an end-stage renal disease patient. The bypass can do fine, and yet the patient still goes on to an amputation. They might still obviously go on to die. And so we'll have to see, you know, with regard to our own results, what, what shakes out. So we can expect future papers analyzing subgroups. Absolutely. We'll definitely be looking forward to that. Now let's move on to cohort two. Cohort two included 396 patients without a single segment of great saphenous vein. 107 received surgical treatment with alternate venous or prosthetic bypasses. And in about 30 patients, an unexpectedly useful great saphenous vein was used, and 199 received endovascular treatment. The technical success was 100% for the bypasses and 80.6% for the endovascular techniques. Both groups obtained similar outcomes, 42.8% and 47.7% death or major adverse limb event, respectively, similar amputation rates, early and late death rates, and new or recurrent CLTI events. 
However, the paper does mention that time until a major reintervention favored the surgical group. Can you provide further details and interpretation? Yeah, unfortunately, cohort two was a relatively small cohort in terms of the numbers that were enrolled. And in many ways, it is probably underpowered. And so certainly there was no difference in the primary endpoint, but there is a signal for major interventions. And so the question is, what does that mean? Why is it that people are choosing to reintervene more frequently on patients in cohort two? I think we still need to understand this better and to try to unpack this and to be able to answer that question. Preoperative prescription of statins and different antiplatelet agents were comparable among the groups in both cohorts. What about postoperative medication? I assume patients who received endovascular treatment received double antiplatelet therapy for a few months and patients with a bypass did not. Who decided on what to prescribe? Was it controlled in any way in the trial? Was the dual pathway of low-dose rivaroxaban and aspirin used as suggested by the Voyager trial? And was the difference in postoperative medication analyzed as a possible confounder? Lots of questions on this topic. The optomedical therapies and the use of medical therapies in general is very important in PAD. There's a lot of recent literature that have noted an important role for a variety of medications, including the rivaroxaban that you mentioned that came out of the Voyager trial. We all understood that that was very important and organized a committee within the trial called the Optimal Medical Therapy Committee that was led by Dr. Michael Jaff that delineated what the appropriate therapies should be in these patients. This information was placed in the manual of operations and it was disseminated to all the investigators. And investigators also received periodic dashboards of how they're doing with respect to the use of statins and antiplatelet agents and so forth compared to others in the trials. This was a way to encourage people to do as best as they could in the utilization of optomedical therapy. So to that end, even though the baseline medical therapy is not as optimal as it can be, and this is something that we reported on in the New England Journal paper, At 30 days, those numbers improved significantly. So I'll I'll tell you that 75% of patients at 30 days after their procedure were on a statin. And that is similar to the 80% that was in Voyager. 83% of patients in cohort one were on at least one antiplatelet agent. 36% were on double antiplatelet agent. And 6.7% were on a DOAC. So I think that shows that, in fact, our efforts did work to try to improve the use of optomedical therapy because these numbers are higher than baseline. But there's a lot of work that we still need to do to unpack these results. And one of the big goals in the near future for us is to actually write a paper on optomedical therapy and its usage in the BestCLI trial. Well, that's great. That certainly shows the detail invested in the design of the study. The trial did not reach the complete enrollment of 2,100 patients estimated to be needed to provide 85% power to detect a relative difference of 25% in the primary outcome. 87% of the estimated sample size was reached. How do you think this limitation affects the validity of the results? The estimated power in cohort one was actually, after recalculation, was close to 90%. And this was due to the fact that there was a much higher rate of events in this patient population. And in the end, even though we had to stop enrollment, we continued follow-up and thereby really ensured that the power was as high as it could be for cohort one. Now, the reality is because there's such a significant difference in outcomes, what the power was is not that relevant for cohort one. 
it is relevant though for cohort two because there's no uh, difference in the primary endpoint. And the question remains is that if the cohort two was better powered, would in fact the difference been noted or not? And that sort of remains unknown. You have to design a second trial then. Exactly. So we're reaching the end of our podcast. I have three questions left. How do you think the results of this trial will affect clinical practice worldwide? Well, I hope the results will make the treatment of CLTI patients more straightforward, uh, leading to lesser interventions and better outcome in patients who are fit for surgery and who have good vein. On the other hand, I think that it also gives freedom to go for endovascular first strategy in patients who have compromised graft. So I think, um, Melina, the question to that remains to be seen. You know, there's no question that the results are disruptive to some folks. You know, those that do practice an endovascular first strategy are going to have to wrestle with changing their practice. As we all know, the guidelines are scant with regard to appropriate therapy for CLTI. And the mission of the trial was to provide a foundation of that data void and to set the stage for the next generation of trials, which can begin to drill down and answer some of the you know, countless questions that the trial's raising. It does provide a clear blueprint and really a clear mandate. One such component of that is vein mapping. And it does point to the fact that vein mapping should become routine in the management of CLTI patients in terms of determining this basic characteristic of a good quality saphenous vein or not. It also highlights the importance of assessing for surgery and, and whether a patient is considered fit for surgical bypass. It also highlights the mandate to have expertise in both revascularization strategies. So if you're a center of excellence for CLTI, you need to be able to provide both therapies. And if you're an individual provider that only provides one of those therapies yourself, it's a clear push to find a collaborator that does the other procedure so you can offer both therapies. The hope is that it will change practice in these ways. And as Marie pointed out, you know, for the better. We hope that this evidence base that we've added to in a space where there's not a lot of evidence base is actually going to be a wake-up call to vascular specialists, particularly vascular surgeons, that they have multiple arrows in their quiver and they should be using all of them and if, that they should not gravitate towards extremes, that it's not open versus endo, it's open and endo. We should be able to provide all of these therapies to our patients. And actually what you've said links with my next question. There is concern about loss of surgical skills in the new generations of vascular and vascular surgeons who are receiving a lot of endo training, but not so much open training, especially in the aorta, but also with tibial bypasses, ultradistal bypasses, beetle bypasses. How important do you think the results of this trial are for current and future training? So I think this is a big challenge for our specialty to be able to maintain all these skill sets, particularly as with some minimally invasive therapies, there's less and less to do of surgical treatment. So for instance, in the aorta, certainly that's a big challenge. How do you teach people how to do open repair abdominal aortic aneurysms when most of them are done using endovascular means? But that's sort of part for the course, again, in the situation where the, the difference in morbidity and mortality is so large. Who's doing open thoracic aneurysm repair now when there's TVAR? That's very rare. And the expectation is it's not going to be something that is done by most people in the future. On the other hand, in the legs, that's just not the truth. The truth is, is that the risk of these procedures are similar. And so 
I think that Vestula is a wake-up call to training programs in vascular surgery that have gravitated towards the extreme. It used to be when I was training, the extreme was keep your shutters on and forget about the fact that the endovascular train is coming. Now the extreme is the other way around. There are some programs where people have stopped doing open surgery and then they justify not needing to do it because they're so good doing endovascular. I think best CLI is a wake-up call to these programs to say that, you know what, both are important and you should be treating your trainees in both techniques. And if you don't know how to do it or are uncomfortable, you should bring in a specialist who is so that your uh, trainees are getting exposure to both. I actually see a lot of interest of trainees now in open procedures and all kinds of open procedures. Marit, what do you think the perspective is in Europe? Yeah, well, first of all, I hope that the skills are not totally lost. I know some institutions that do pretty much only endo and they do very, very seldom open surgery may lack some skills. However, I'm sure the skills can be found again training of distal bypass surgery, it just works and it's relatively easy with simulation models and with cadaver courses. And right now we are planning or we have been planning for years, but now Bestiali gave us a new enthusiasm for intensive distal bypass course in Helsinki because we do a lot of distal bypasses. So we can train people. Well, we've covered a lot of ground. I think you've already uh, given us some take-home messages. Are there any final comments or any final conclusions you would like to add before we wrap up? Yumelina, I'll just make a couple of comments. So just to add to what Alec and Marie said, Alec indicated that, you know, these are just two tools that we have available to us. I really want to emphasize that I think we're all going to be better served if we don't pit one strategy versus the other. And the analogy that I like to use is in the cancer world, and I don't think anyone in their right mind would think that surgical oncology and radiation oncology and medical oncology techniques, you know, are competing or should compete, but those three subspecialties all collaborate, and it should be exactly the same in CLTI. The the decision tree is, you know, in a given patient, should it be open, should it be endo, should it be hybrid, should it be medical therapy, should it be primary amputation? So that's a, a very key kind of conclusion that I would highlight. The other piece is that the trial kind of, I think, brings to the surface some underlying tension. You know, we all think that we've got surgical techniques kind of down. We've been doing the same bypass for 60 years. So one, it's a huge challenge for us to get off our butts and think about innovating in the surgical world. And, you know, Marit says it's fairly easy to train. On the other hand, you know, surgical bypass can be very hard, you know, and that's part of the reason why some people have migrated around it. You have to put in effort and you got to learn how to do it right. But the other piece of it is that so-called best endo, I think, is not clearly defined. So a lot of people kind of think they know what it is, but it's not in the guidelines because the data hasn't been put out there to get into the guidelines. Looking ahead the next 10 years, That's the challenge to really figure out, you know, what are the best components of an endovascular revascularization, do the appropriate legwork to do the science to show that and have that populate the guidelines. And the same thing with surgical therapy. And I think we'll all be better served if we can do that. So I think that one of the importances of CLI is that it sheds light on patients with PAD and CLTI. And those patients traditionally have not had a lot of light shown on them. Certainly in comparison to coronary artery disease or cerebrovascular disease, 
Uh, there's just hasn't been a lot of research in this space. And now with the growth of this patient population, you know, because of the aging world population and the epidemic of diabetes, it's becoming really common and it's important for more light to be shown on this. So we took a step. I know that Andrew Bradbury has two basal trials that are hopefully going to break very soon. And what I hope is that other investigators take the next steps and ask the next series of questions that need to be answered in the space, because I think that patients with CLTI and PAD really deserve that. I echo Mark that this is not open search reverses endovascular therapy. I mean, we really still have a huge proportion of patients who go up for endo first. And there are different reasons, but we have to remember that there is also many, many patients who really benefit from surgery first. And if we think what is the best for patients, we should really have these both endovascular and open surgery in the toolbox. We definitely have a vast, interesting specialty with great present and greater future. Thank you so much for joining us today for this Vascular Forum interview and clarifying all these details from the trial. On behalf of our team, we would like to congratulate you, the co-authors, and all the participants for a landmark study that will impact our practice, benefit our patients, and definitely go into the next guidelines. It has been a real pleasure talking to you and learning from your experience. Thanks very much. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Melina. An ESBS webinar was held recently on December 21st, 2022, on this best CLI trial with Drs. Faber and Menard, among other presenters. You can watch it on demand in the ESVS e-library. If you're not already an ESVS member, join now for this and lots of other great content in the e-library, as well as educational events all year round. I hope you have enjoyed this podcast at least half as much as I have. We will be back soon with more ESVS podcasts. Remember, you can catch up with more than 90 published podcasts, open access in SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, the Vascular Forum webpage, and the ESVS e-library. Have a great day. Have an even better weekend. Talk to you soon. Bye for now. Thank you. Bye now. Bye-bye.